0: Well, good morning, Grand Rapids Evangelical Free Church. My name is Pastor Ron Weller. I'm the interim pastor or soon to be at Grand Rapids Evangelical Free Church. I look forward to being there in person. Unfortunately, I've not been able to yet and, and being delayed as well this morning because we have COVID in our home. And to take caution, we decided it'd be best, along with the elders, made that decision. If I did this sermon, by video so we are doing that and we hope that it is the right thing uh, we know it's the right thing to do and we hope that we will not have COVID. at this point my wife and i do not and we're not sure about our son but he appears to have many if not all of the symptoms so this morning i just like to tell you a little bit about myself I'm an employee with ipm which stands for interim pastoral minister Uh, and what we do is we are pastors that go in, in between pastors. When a pastor leaves, we come in, and we have been doing this for about 26 years now. We have served 1,100 churches. There are about 200 of us, and we have a board of directors. We have accountability. We have coaches, and that's what I really like about IPM is we work as a team. I work with your elders. That We work with the denominational, which would be the North Central District. And we work with a coach and we work with IPM as necessary. So it becomes a team approach. So it's not me coming in acting as a CEO, but I come in as a servant and a coach. And I want to be all that I can, that River, that the, uh, the Evangelical Free Church and Grand Rapids can move forward. Our mission, IPM's mission is... Strengthening Churches During Pastoral Transition for Greater Effectiveness. Strengthening Churches During Pastoral Transition for Greater Effectiveness. I want to give a longer presentation, IPM, but I'll wait till next week to do that. Instead, what I'd like to do is just look at our passage this morning and do a message on Ephesians chapter 4. Now, as I understand, you went through Ephesians Chapter four, one through six last week and have been going through Ephesians for a number of months and I will continue that and I understand that uh, you've been going kind of doing it verse by verse and that's the way I will do it as well. So if you have your Bibles, turn to chapter four of the book of Ephesians and the first three chapters of Ephesians are uh, peculiar and noteworthy in that they are a dissertation of sorts. Paul the Apostle telling the church in Ephesus, here's who you are. Here is your identity. Here's what's happened inside of you. Here's what God has done by his spirit through Christ Jesus. And then we get into chapter four and he moves what's now called the imperatives. What In those first three chapters, technically it's called the indicative. Here's All that you need to know about your identity. Then we get into the imperatives. Now here are the implications. Here is what Christ wants to work in you. As if to say that the new life is a work of God, not a work of us. No man could or should then boast. It is a work of the living God. This is obvious in all of scripture. But for today... We begin to see Paul lay out what the church is, who we are, what is it to be a member of Christ's church. And he begin to unfold that and like to unpack that in Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to read 1 through 10. Paul the Apostle, Ephesians 4 1 through 10. I, therefore, a prisoner for the or Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to that one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Verse seven, this is our text for this morning. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that you've given us a book, a glorious book. It could only be inspired of you. It is the book of books. It teaches us about yourself, truth, what you've said about yourself and what you've said about your creation. Today, we look at what you created, your church, and we want to align ourselves with truth. And we want to leave here changed. And we want to love your church more. But first, we want to love you more, the head of the church. So would you work that in us this morning for the sake of your name in the earth. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. God has an incredible plan to fill the earth with his glory. He has a passion to fill the earth with his glory glory and one of the ways he does it is by means of his body called the church the church functioning as it ought but we need to visit someplace first to see where it says that the church is for his glory and we find that in ephesians chapter one turn back if you would ephesians chapter one beginning with verse six look at three places where paul makes it very clear that we have This thing weighing upon us that we are to live for his glory. Here's what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Verse 6, chapter 1. To the praise of his glorious grace. Mark that. If you go a little bit further... You find this in verse 12 as well. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ, the church, Paul himself, might be, what? To the praise of his glory. He's not done. Verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance, the Holy Spirit, until we acquire possession of it, here it is again, to the praise of his glory. So we begin to see that God's redemptive plan is fully in line with bringing honor and glory to his name. In fact, I would argue that the church is where he does that. He's also doing it in creation. Of course, we have that in uh, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. In other words, the heavens do give us a sermon about who God is and how glorious he is. But the church has a unique and special place. In fact... He says he wants to fill all things to the fullness. What does he mean by that? Here's what it says in Ephesians 1, 20 and 23. He raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him christ as head over all things in the church which is his body to the fullness of him who fills all in all i believe the interpretation of this is that christ fills his church he is the builder of the church the sustainer of the church and the one who fills the church with his fullness or his rule it is said of god Jeremiah 23 24 do I not fill the heaven God's asking that question and the earth and so begin to see right away that Christ the living Christ is God and the writer of the book of Jeremiah Jeremiah himself said that Christ would be God is God in the flesh In Isaiah 6 we see it the train of his robe filled the temple and Isaiah goes on to say, the whole earth is full of his glory. So what we begin to see is that the church is being raised up with this in mind for his glory. Now, before we go any further, we need to find out what does it mean that we glorify God? Well, we need to back up a little bit. And what does it mean that God is glorified? This might be a little unusual to me, but God is glorifying himself. He does it in two ways, appearing or being manifested to himself in his own perfect idea or in his son, who is the brightness of his glory, by enjoying and delighting in himself. You ever thought about that? That God delights in himself. If God delights in anyone else but himself, what would we call him? An idolater. He's delighting in himself by flowing forth an in infinite love within the Trinity. So God glorifies himself by being manifested in his son who is the brightness of his glory and by enjoying and delighting in himself by flowing forth in this infinite love and delight of the father and the son of the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to visit that at another time. But here's what I want you to think about. This is a, a, by the way, this is a quote from Jonathan Edwards. One of, I think, one of America's greatest theologians. And he goes on to talk about how does God glorify himself? And he says it this way in his church in two ways. By appearing to them, being manifested to their understanding and communicating himself to their hearts and in their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestations which he makes of himself. Let me put it another way. God glorifies himself Towards us, his creatures and the church, by appearing to them, being delighting, by being making himself clear in their understanding, and then communicating himself in their hearts, and then them rejoicing in him. So God has in mind, or his son also has in mind this thing called glory to his name in the church but it's not just a new testament idea psalm 72 says it as well we have the prayer of the psalmist and he says blessed be the lord god the god of israel who works wonders and blessed be his glorious name forever and then his prayer and may the whole earth be filled with his glory the prayer of the psalmist that the earth will be filled with his glory. Well, we know that'll happen in the last day. The whole earth will be filled with his glory. But what about now? What about in the interim? What is his specimen? Who is his specimen that would bring glory to him? And might I say, begin to fill the earth with his glory. And my argument this morning is, is his church. And he begins to unfold this in chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. And he brings to bear the shape of how the gifts of the Spirit begin to show the glory of the Lord and fills the church with his glory as well as the earth with his glory. And he does it through his son. He does it through his son revealing himself in his people. The agent of it is the Holy Spirit. Now, if you haven't heard this, it's true that the ownership of the church is not a pastor. It is not the elders. It is not the deacons. It's not a church boss. It is himself. Often people have asked me, well, how is your church? I had done something one time I probably regretted, but somebody asked me that, and I said, well, my church is really not very good. In fact, there's nobody in my church. Our church isn't growing. My church isn't growing. In fact, nobody cares about my church in the church, and nobody prays at my church. And they said, what? I said, I'm saying this because I don't have a church. It's Christ's church. I am a pastor in the church or a leader in the church, but it is his church. And you never find it in the New Testament where Peter or Paul says, my church, or James saying, my church, or the church of James. But this redemptive plan he brought to bear to save us from the wrath of God, which is what it means to be saved, He now brings something new to the table. He said, we have this church. And he said, we're going to fill the earth with his glory, or at least contribute to it. And he'll do it. He's going to tell us in a number of ways. So if you have your Bibles, chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. Here's what it says. But grace was given. Now, what I've been talking about is unity. Now he begins something new. He's going to talk about diversity. He's going to say our unity is accomplished by our diversity. That sounds like a contradiction. But it's not, if you think about it. If we were all the same, whoa, if we were, would not we stumble and fall on one another? But here he said, but grace was given to each one of us. Usually the word but is a reversal word. So he might be changing something or going to give the opposite, but here he's saying, but don't think Ephesian believers, in light of this unity, that you're all gonna look the same, that everybody's gonna have the same ambitions, the same gifts, even the same personality, but he's saying, no, rather, I, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is gonna fill the earth with his glory by giving you each different gifts. Look at what it says, but grace was given. Point number one is this. It's always been by grace and it continues by grace. I'd like you to think about grace for a minute. Grace is that favor, that sovereign favor of God, unmerited, nobody deserves it. I like that definition, but that's not full enough, is it? Here we have grace, meaning what? That God's favor, certainly, but God is acting. I'd like you to think for a minute of grace this way that God is acting out of divine favor and love. He's acting to accomplish his purposes in Christ Jesus. That's what he's saying. But grace was given to who? Each one of us. There's not one who doesn't have a gift. Each one of us. And the reason we have a gift is because we have grace. Grace is his divine favor, but it's also his acting on behalf of the church for his glory. And it seems to be a contradiction that he had give different gifts, various gifts, even a, a, an amazing diversity. And what would it accomplish? It'll accomplish unity. Because if you look down a little bit further, he says that in verse 12 to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ, verse 13. Until when we all attain to the unity of the faith, so gifts are to build one another up to what end to the unity of the faith. So we see that God is acting and He's giving gifts and He does it by grace, the gospel. Is a gospel of grace it can only be received it can not be earned and it's producing in people the new life and its source is god himself by the spirit now look what he says in verse and in verse seven it was given to the, according to the measure of christ's gift what was his gift Well, we know it is his death, his resurrection, and we'll see in a minute, his ascension. And he says the gifts are what? Purchased by what? By the measure of Christ's gift, according to. Now, what is Christ's gift? We know that it's infinite. The measure of Christ's gifts is immeasurable. And verse 8 tells us how he gets there. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to man. Paul is alluding back to something from the Old Testament. It's chapter 60 of the book of Psalms. If you have your Bibles, turn back there, you'll see it. And let's do that just for a minute. If you have your Bibles, just take a minute to do that. Psalm 68. We find ourselves there. And... Verse 18, we could go back a little bit for, to verse 16. <clears throat> Why do you look with hatred, O oh, many-peaked mountain, at the mountain that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Verse 18, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Paul is actually alluding to this in light of giving gifts. Now, what's he alluding to is an Old Testament scenario. If a king would go out, he would triumph. And he would, if he would triumph, he would take captive many prisoners and he would bring them through the streets and people would cheer and he also had spoils and he would take from them the plunder and he would bring this through the street and he would take captive the captives but then he would give gifts to men and that's what they would do, the plunder. They would hand to people who had maybe been a part of the triumph and victory and they would get the gifts and paul's alluding to that saying it's like that jesus is triumphant and he led a host of captives he conquered sin satan and death and now he has conquered and he's taken the plunder and he's now giving gifts to men he is the one who has the right to give them out the triumphant christ is what paul's alluding to here He has won the victory. And by that victory, he took captive captives. And he has now given gifts to those who are in his kingdom. And verse 8 again, back when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. You know that he has ascended. He gave gifts. We love to talk about in the gospel how he died for our sins and he rose from the dead. But you know what's just as important? That he ascended on high. He is the great high priest. If he didn't ascend on high, it seems to be here we would not give gifts. We'd not receive gifts. But in verse 9 it says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended? Paul is saying this same Jesus, this same Jesus who descended, which is how we'd say Christmas, he descended to earth. He took on humanity. He was God in the flesh. And he descended. And Paul's saying he ascended. And the evidence that he did ascend is that he gave gifts to men. He triumphed. Verse 10. He who had descended is one who ascended, uh, ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. What we have here. Is the Apostle Paul is telling us that the Lord Jesus distributed gifts that he might fill all in all. Have you ever thought about your gift as being part of God's plan of filling all in the church of God's rule and reign and what it would look like is blood-bought unity. So I just have three short applications. Number one, we haven't had time to go to talk about all the gifts. There are a number of places, 1 Corinthians and Romans 12. But the truth is, I think, that God has given every born-again person, through grace, a spiritual gift. It's important transcends, and I mean this, personality types, skills in the business world, savvy and finances, sporting skills, music skills. Why? Because spiritual gifts are purchased by the blood of Christ. Blood bought for body life. This tells us how costly the gifts of Jesus were that he gave to us. Out of his great victory, he gives gifts, but not until he has given himself. Number two, the discovery of our spiritual gifts is not some passing idea. It is very significant. They are not to lie dormant. They are like Paul told Timothy, a young pastor, fan your gift into a flame. Thirdly, find out your gift. Do you know there are free spiritual gift tests online? Lifeway has one. It's free. Take your children. Have them discover their spiritual gift. Now, realize that it's only an inventory. It's not a perfect representation of what your spiritual gift. I think the best way you can solidify what your spiritual gifts is, is by serving. You begin to see, oh, this is my niche. This is my spiritual gift. This is where I fit. Fourthly, diverse spiritual gifts is the way we become unified. Our different gifts, I'll give Lincoln Duncan credit for this, are to serve our unity. In our diverse giftedness, our unity is realized. And we'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Father, may you be glorified. May you glorify yourself at Grand Rapids Evangelical Free Church, even beginning this week in a new and fresh way. We thank you for the truth. We thank you, Lord, that it is for our good. And now we've seen it is for your glory how when we align with it, we know you are, you are acting to accomplish all of your purposes in Christ Jesus. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.